listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Ambrose Bierce, the Civil War veteran and American writer, defined history as an account mostly false of events mostly unimportant, which are brought about by rulers, mostly knaves, and soldiers, mostly fools. But what about Ambrose Bierce's own historical writing, his short stories of the Civil War era? Were they mostly false? We'll find out today when we talk to our guest, Professor David Mike Owens, author of The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce and the American War Story, here on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a it's not a green day, but a cloudy, gray, indeed pouring rain day here in June of 2007. Uh, oh, but although I come from you from the office here, I do not speak for the university, nor does the university speak for me or for the guest or anybody for anybody else, all each on his own hook here on Civil War Talk Radio, as always. Well, it is a, a day of uh, absolute pouring torrential rain outside at this moment, Although, as I've learned, in eastern North Carolina, that means very little. Half an hour from now, it could be dry and sunny, and these soccer fields could be full once again. Um, but we have thunder in the background for verisimilitude for my weather report. It's also our last uh, show of the 2006-07 season. I will be on the road traveling, doing some teaching, some research, some vacationing, and we'll return with new shows uh, at the end of August, uh, we'll be doing uh, archive reruns until then. So uh, I appreciate very much all the support everyone has given to the show over the past nine months uh, in our third season. I look forward to starting the new season in September, or actually August 31. And uh, uh, with with the new website and all, we are still soldiering forward, and, and things have gone well. 
This has been an interesting year here at uh, at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. Uh, I've kept you abreast uh, of my exciting tenure uh, search, tenure hunt, which has ended successfully. And because academia is completely unpredictable, I find out not only uh, am I going to be uh, permanently part of the department as of the fall, but I've also just been named the interim chair of the history department while our current chair undertakes a temporary assignment. So I'll be running things around here with an iron fist for the next year or so. Um, I anticipate perhaps uh, remodeling the Civil War talk radio headquarters in which I sit or something else using the taxpayers' money. Uh, we'll see how much power, power I have in, in that role. But enough of that, as always. Today we're going to talk about uh, the great Civil War short story writer and uh, memoirist, Ambrose Bierce. Uh, before going any further, I will caution any listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of reading Bierce's short stories. It's time to uh, stop listening and go get a copy from the library or from a bookstore of Bierce's Civil War writings and read the stories. They're each short and irresistible, won't take you very long. But many of them depend on uh, unexpected endings, or at least the first couple stories you read, they're unexpected. After a while, you sort of get the, the idea of where he's likely to be heading with the next one. Uh, you've all read A Current at Owl Creek Bridge back in high school, but beyond that, there are many other stories with, with endings that are supposed to surprise the reader, and we're going to spoil many of them in the ensuing hour. So if you haven't read them yet, stop listening now, go read the stories, uh, come back and resume listening uh, on your iPod or computer or whatever to the rest of the show. But that, that's today's spoiler alert. So our guest, our guest today is uh, the author of The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce and the American War Story, and his name is David M. Owens. Uh, Professor Owens, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Ah, oh, wonderful. And you go by the name of Mike, I understand? Yes, I do. Is, is, is That's not too informal if I call you that? No, not at all. I go by my middle name. So. Uh, I, my daughter does that. Uh, uh, Mary Caroline uh, goes by Caroline. and It has caused her endless grief in high school. Uh, on the official forms, they always have her first name or her first initial. Uh, did, did you manage to uh, survive that socially, the middle name business? Well, I'd, I'd call it an ongoing struggle. I mean, typically it's a dentist trying to be friendly who call me David and <laughs> people who don't know me very well at all. It, it, it is a dead giveaway, though. It helps. If someone, yes, absolutely. You get a phone call from an insurance salesman, hey, David. That's right. They don't know who you are. <laughs> a very friendly voice that calls me Dave or David. All right. Well, well, well I will avoid doing that uh, as we go. Well, uh, congratulations on your tenure vote there. Thank you. Thank That's you. Terrific. It, it's uh, a big milestone. I'm, I'm oh, relieved to have passed it. Absolutely. Um, now, I, I don't have your CP in front of me. I, I assume you're, with your excellent book here, I'm assuming you're past that as well. Uh, yes, but not by much. I, I was uh, tenured last year, actually, yeah. and promoted to associate. Excellent. Congratulations. And you're at, at Valparaiso University? Yes, in Valparaiso University Valparaiso. in Valparaiso. Even though I lived in northern Indiana, I still say it wrong. Um, <laughs> Valparaiso, uh, after uh, which is in, in the northwestern part of the state, I believe. That's right. We're on the uh, sort of the outer fringes of the greater Chicago area. Yeah, it's not not far from from Gary, I suppose. No, no, we're uh, just 
just a tad uh, southeast of Gary. So uh, I, I drove from Fort Wayne, where I spent nine years, to Chicago and back many times, and the uh, the overpowering stench of, of Gary and the in industry located there uh, is, sticks in my mind. You had to right. roll up the car windows. Right. But I wonder, are those are those factories even still operating? Uh, some are, yeah. Most of the uh, the steel mills, you know, still operate. Although, you know, granted, the American steel industry has taken some hits in recent years, but they they are still operating. And we're just uh, oh, as the crow flies, probably uh, 15 to 20 miles south of that. We're sort of right where the Rust Belt and the Corn Belt meet. That, that's a good description. I can picture that vividly. The yeah. uh, and that comes into play here in, in, in the career of Ambrose Bierce, who, who hailed from uh, from northern Indiana, where it's extraordinarily flat. The glacier didn't leave anything when it scraped over it. It's a giant pool table. Right. Uh, but Bierce, as, as we'll talk about, served in some very mountainous country. Well, let's talk about uh, Ambrose Bierce. Uh, he... Well, there's so many interesting angles to to approach this from. He wrote war stories, as you put it in your your subtitle. What do you mean by a war story? Well, interestingly enough, you know that's a term that people use in casual conversation all the time, or frequently, and it gets slung around a lot. But in in researching uh, Bierce, I could not come across uh, a widely accepted definition of that term. Um, even in some of the huge comprehensive dictionaries of literary terms. It, it's just not there. So I defined it for purposes of, of uh, the book uh, basically as short fiction uh, um, about, about war, and I find I needed to do that uh, for purposes of the book's discussion. And I, I called it uh, a type of short uh, story predominantly concerned with or inherently linked to armed military conflict. Although I I say it the characters are char the main character or other characters in the stories need not be combatants themselves, but that the conflict needs to have some kind of significant influence on their actions and their and their fate. Um and I, I go so far as to say that uh by my definition a war story isn't necessarily set you know, in a scene of combat, but it is inherently linked to uh, combat. And one of the points you, you make about the war story is the idea that it's it is a true story, not mm -hmm. necessarily a factual story. But you you quote the line of, of how all fairy tales begin once upon a time. And that's right. But all war stories begin. This is no bullshit. That's right. Uh, and uh, that's a joke I heard many times uh, in the army, and. What you've got there is the the narrator of the story straight off the bat insisting on uh, the story's authenticity, you know, trying to create the idea that, hey, this really did happen, <laughs> or, or I I have it on good authority that this really did happen. So, I, I think certainly a primary quality of enduring war fiction, the stuff that becomes classic, the stuff that sticks around, is that quality of verisimilitude, of, of believability, of the possibility that this really did happen, you know, regardless of whether whether the, it's an actual factual recreation of events. Uh, it's what Tim O'Brien calls uh, making the stomach believe. 
so it's got to it's got to ring true in some way that yeah the certainly it has to ring true with uh, human nature and uh, the actions of uh, soldiers in combat that sort of thing. Well, Beers himself was a soldier. Uh, he tell us a little bit about his career in in the, in the Civil War. Well, he, he had a very distinguished career in the Civil War. Um, enlisted at the uh, ripe old age of uh, 18 or 19, he was one of the first men in his county, which uh, was in Elkhart, Indiana. He was one of the first men to respond to uh, Lincoln's initial call for volunteers. Um, he, he, of course, enlists as a private with uh, no prior military experience beyond a year at a military high school. Ships off to the fighting or to the initial fighting in West Virginia. Um, musters back in when his regiment is uh, is mustered out and remustered. Uh, he serves for, through virtually the entire war, um, and he begins a quick rise in the ranks uh, very early on, gets promoted to, uh, to corporal to sergeant to sergeant major. Um, eventually, he's he crosses that great divide between uh, enlisted soldier and officer, and he gets a battlefield commission to second lieutenant. Um, his The unit he enlists in is the 9th Indiana Volunteers, which is an, uh, an infantry regiment. Eventually beca- becomes part of uh, William B. Hazen's uh, brigade. And uh, Beers, and it's not clear exactly how this happens, but somehow it becomes apparent that apparent that Beers is talented as a map maker, as a cartographer, and he becomes the regimental topographic engineer, uh, which is essentially the map maker. Uh, and he, in that capacity, he's working. He ends up working very closely uh, with uh, with General Colonel and later General Hazen on his uh, personal staff there. Uh, Beers sees campaigns. Uh, Basically in West Virginia, and then later, and then uh, later on, when the regiment gets moved to, to uh, Tennessee in 1862, he sees the fighting uh, in the Western Theater there, basically from Shiloh uh, all the way all the way across Tennessee, you know, into Alabama and Georgia. Uh, he fights it at uh, uh, Murfreesboro, the Battle of Stones River. He's in the fighting at Chickamauga, Missionary Ridge, and then the campaign for Atlanta. And eventually, he's wounded fairly uh, seriously in the head by a Confederate sharpshooter uh, at Kennesaw Mountain, Georgia, just a little northwest of Atlanta. That knocks him out of action for several months. Uh, he comes back. That happened in June of 1864. He comes. He convalesces uh, and comes back on duty that fall. I believe it was in September of 1864. Um, is unable to join back up with his old unit, uh, but but continues uh, uh, on up to uh, uh, the Battle of Franklin, uh, Tennessee, and continues to work as a cartographer. Unfortunately, the wound that he had suffered causes him some uh, fainting spells and dizziness that interfere enough uh, with his duties that he's discharged in the closing months of the war. He's discharged in January or February of 1865. So he's seen virtually the entire war 
um, fought through the entire war. He's been in three of the war's ten costliest battles in terms of casualties, um, those being Shiloh, Stones River, and Chickamauga. Uh, he ends up as a first lieutenant, um, and by all accounts, he was uh, he, w- he was a an, ex- an excellent soldier and was quite good at what he did as a uh, cartographer. So he, he had no shortage of experience of war from no. which to write uh, his short stories afterward. No, absolutely not. I think it's pretty remarkable in many ways that uh, uh, he was able to survive, uh, as I said, virtually the entire conflict. Uh, wounded, yes, but, but survived and went on to have a long and prosperous life. I remember Paul Fussell in his, his book on World War I literature made yeah. the observation that uh, one of the qualities uh, that a writer has to have the quality of imagination, has to be able to put himself in his character's place and, and imagine how others see things and so on. Whereas uh, a soldier, and he's referring more perhaps to 20th century industrial war, uh, to survive must have the quality of being able to completely close down his imagination not think about what could happen, what might happen, uh, just to preserve his sanity. And this is Fussell's argument why there are so few great soldier writers. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, do you, can you relate that to Beers at all? Is that a reasonable theory? Well, I, yeah, I think it is. And, and I do think it's interesting that uh, there are so few soldier writers. And uh, certainly plenty of people have commented on something that I also comment as well on in in, uh, in my book, and that is this time lag that typically follows the end of a conflict and the uh, and the beginning of what I would really call the fiction that that uh, survives or that uh, endures the the stuff that we read year after year and teach in the classroom year after year and gets anthologized um, that that fiction tends to start appearing 10 to 20 years after the end of the conflict. And I think probably a lot of that has to do with exactly um, what Fussell is talking about there, where the uh, um, the uh, former soldier has to have time to come to grips uh, with what he or she has been through and uh, begin to sort it out and begin to uh, get the imagination going, if you will. Um, and it's... Beers is kind of an interesting case, and it gets it gets complicated because uh, one thing that several critics have noticed about Beers, and I certainly did not go into the book trying to bear this out, but my my research did, is that in some ways he is uh, limited or tethered a little bit by his uh, by his own experience. His war fiction is very much grounded in his own experience, and. Um, he certainly had uh, quite an imagination. You can see that over and over again in the stories. But uh, it's it's an imagination that has it's a literary imagination that has certain boundaries around it. Uh, um, I, I would contrast him a little bit here with Stephen Crane, you know, who wrote the Red Badge of Courage, having never heard a shot fired in anger. I mean, Crane imagined the whole thing. I don't that, think that Pierce would be an obvious contrast. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think Bierce could quite have done that. I think he needed the experience in order to add his imagination to it, if you will. 
I think I think that certainly makes sense. We're going to take a short break here and come back in just a moment. Okay. Our guest today is Mike Owens, author of The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce, and the American War Story. And we'll be back with him in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. ones that ring true. Were Ambrose Bierce's war stories true? Was there an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge? What did happen at Shiloh? What about Chickamauga and the other great stories? We'll find out if Bierce was actually at all these places when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. And my guest today is Mike Owens, author of The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce, and the American War Story. In our first segment, we were talking a little bit about the career of Bierce of the 9th Indiana, later on the brigade and uh, division staff of General William Hazen. Uh, during the war, a topographer, a, a map maker. Uh, after the war, a newspaper man and writer of very interesting uh, short fiction about the Civil War, as well as some uh, autobiographical pieces. And uh, to repeat the spoiler alert from the first segment, uh, if you haven't read Bierce's stories, uh, go back and read them now before you listen to the rest so we don't spoil any endings for you. Well, the most famous of of Bierce's Civil War pieces, and and the one with a uh, surprise ending, certainly, is the the story uh, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which uh, most listeners will remember probably reading in a high school English class, the story of the Confederate partisan sentenced to hang, uh, having been caught, and he is uh, thrown off the bridge, and uh, miraculously the rope breaks and he swims away, or so it seems. Uh, Mike, this story, you see it all over the place. There was a black-and-white movie uh, version of it I remember seeing in, in high school English class about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, after I became more interested in the war uh, as history, I found that I really liked Beers' other fiction, and this one, eh, not so much. Why is this one the most famous? 
I I think it's probably the most famous because it does such a good job of fooling so many readers. Um, Beers really, I think, brings several uh, factors together very masterfully there to uh, hook the reader in. And by the way, I appreciate you giving the spoiler alert. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. If anyone's still listening and they yeah. don't want to know how these stories end, too late. We're, we're going to talk about them now. And, and I would have to say the same of my book. It's going. If you haven't read the stories, it will ruin them for you. <laughs> it read it the will, stories. but it, uh, if the listeners can't tell, it, it's a great book. It's really entertaining. Uh, and uh, if, if you've read the stories, then it's indispensable. Thank you. Um, but back to your question. Yeah, at hand. let's talk about um, address that first. I, I think the reason that uh, it's anthologized is is because Beer so masterfully pulls the reader into the delusions that the protagonist is suffering from as he's waiting uh, to drop and as he actually drops uh, uh, from the bridge there. Uh, most of us, the first time we read it, just find ourselves going right along with what's going on in the uh, uh, protagonist whose name is Peyton Farquhar uh, in Farquhar's brain, which we know is distorted. We're told that. We know he's <laughs> we know he's suffering from some delusions, and yet we go right along with him uh, and and participate in this uh, elaborate escape fantasy he has. And at the very end, we typically come out you know, surprised and shocked that it was, after all, just an escape fantasy. And it, it does work very well as as fiction in that sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when, when I first saw the premise of your book, I, I came across a review of it, actually, online and, uh-huh. and read the review. And uh, it seemed part of it was that you, you attempt to locate each of Bierce's stories as you said in the first segment, they're closely related to his experience. Um, you, you locate each story literally somewhere in the war. What period of the war, what, what uh, theater, what, what campaign or battle that Beers participated in that would serve as the inspiration for a particular story or indeed as the exact location in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when I first saw that premise, it, it made me think of uh, oh, oh, the guide you can get to the Killer Angels that tells you which quotes are, are verbatim from some historical source and which ones were made up by the novelist, mm-hmm. which is sort of a fun parlor thing to have, but doesn't really enhance your knowledge of the Civil War or Michael Shard's fiction very much. Um, but you go far beyond that. You didn't just look these up to say, well, killed at Rosaka happens at Rosaka. Um, that, that's not your whole point here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what is the point? Why, why does it help us to know where these stories took place? Well, I think what it what it does is uh, if you're if you're an academic who's interested in beers, or if you're just a fan of beers, it really begins after a while to uh, uh, point out a couple of things or to highlight a couple of things. Uh, one one is what a creature of authorial habit beers himself was, uh, and this goes back to my uh, earlier comments about his experience and imagination, the combination of experience and imagination, is uh, all his war stories are are, uh, grounded or rooted in his own personal experience. And the... uh, uh, because he was a topographer, that's that's what got me interested in this. I thought, well, um, 
I've noticed that in most of his stories, uh, he tends to describe terrain very vividly. He's very good at that, uh, at giving you the, the topographic features of the settings. Um, perhaps his experience as a topographer had something to do with that. And, and I, think that's, uh, I think that's very true. And I think uh, by, by creating, by basing the settings of his stories on terrain that actually exists, um, albeit he will play around with it uh, uh, quite a bit, but on bases, ba by basing it on uh, places that he was, I think that adds greatly to the quality of verisimilitude that we were talking about earlier uh, in, in his stories. The the progression that Bierce makes through the war, uh, starting you know serving with the Ninth Indiana, mm -hmm. initially in West Virginia in the first year of the war, you you go through his stories. You, you locate them not only in in space but in time, and you, you discuss them in in the chronological order in which the stories would have happened, not not the order in which he wrote them. So the first group you talk about are the West Virginia stories. Yep. And it, it seems to me your argument is, is that these reflect not only, uh, uh, by, by putting them in this order, you can see a development in different interests in Bierce's own viewpoint. The ones in West Virginia reflect the view of an enlisted man more than an officer. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, that's ex that's exactly right. And what became apparent to me after a while, and I, quite frankly, I sort of stumbled across this uh, uh, by accident. I was trying to think of different ways to organize an examination of his stories, and I I, I realized that if I arranged that when I arranged them chronologically by the time of the action of the story, as you said, not when he wrote them or not when they were published, but the time of the action of the story. Suddenly, the the themes that he's dealing with in those stories have this very distinct pattern of uh, reflecting things that Bierce himself would have been concerned with at that time of the war, during the campaign in West Virginia. Campaigning in West Virginia, uh, Bierce was a private soldier and a sergeant, uh, and and that's what those stories tend to deal with is uh, uh, issues facing private soldiers uh, and and sergeants. For, you know, first-line supervisors of soldiers. And then as you go farther along chronologically in the war, he begins to pull, begins to pull in other things, uh, issues of officership and leadership and uh, bravery and courage on the part of officers. Uh, it's, they tend to get the military situations in them tend to get more and more complex thematically as you go through. So at first we see stories that are... are, are well, morally complex, perhaps, have a fairly straightforward issue, like a, a horseman in the sky, for example. Yeah, a great story. Uh, this takes place in West Virginia on some unknown, unnamed mountain. That's right. And a Union sentry uh, falls asleep, which, as you point out, is an important detail, uh, wakes up and discovers a Confederate scout looking down into the valley where the Union brigade is about to set off on a, a mission if the Confederate gets back to camp, that brigade's mission will be compromised. They'll be trapped in the valley. He must stop the scout from getting back. Right. And he thinks of his father's words, do your duty. So he does his duty and shoots the Confederate scout. But this being Ambrose Bierce, it's not just any scout. Uh, uh, it's, of course, his own father, mm -hmm. uh, who then falls a 1,000 feet off the cliff. Uh, right. Uh, to his death below. 
a, a number of points come up there. One, one is, is the idea of a thousand-foot cliff uh, in the hands of a non-topographer. You'd say, well, that's just a nice round number, a giant cliff instead of <laughs> a big cliff. Uh, but you point out there really are a thousand-foot cliffs that Beer saw. Yeah. Uh, now, a, a cliff that's a thousand feet high is going to be a very distinctive cliff, and there there aren't many of those. <laughs> so, uh, if if, in, if indeed there is one uh, near near Grafton, West Virginia, which is where the story is set, it ought to be easy to find, and and indeed it is. There there is one. Uh, it's called uh, Seneca Rocks. Uh, a uh, uh, national park there, uh, in, in not too far from Grafton, West Virginia, and I, I believe that is indeed what he had in mind when he the terrain feature that he had in mind when he wrote that story. Uh, it's the only one like it in the in the state, so far as I know. And Beers indeed was in that area, uh, and you uh, it's not that difficult to document when his uh, unit. Uh, passed by those cliffs. So, so we know he saw them, or well, Juno was there. Presumably, he saw them. Mm-hmm. Be hard to miss, obviously. That's right. And uh, and he works this into his fiction. Now, he doesn't always. He doesn't name them. He doesn't say this happened at Seneca Rocks. That's right. Um, and you point out in his early fiction, uh, these stories often you, you get the, the comparison to Stephen Crane that you mentioned, where the Crane's protagonist. Uh, just sees the the bottom end of war. Just sees the the nearby trees and the smoke, right. and uh, doesn't know necessarily where he is. It's not his job to know. That's right. Uh, and that's certainly true of of the, the protagonist in in this story and the other ones in West Virginia. But by the time you get to Shiloh, uh, he's naming uh, Beers is naming things specifically. He says we did this story takes place in the first part of 1862. Uh, and, and he'll he'll name names or name, he'll mention General Hazen or he'll mention a specific terrain feature. Mm-hmm. Is he just getting better at topography, or is this a changing viewpoint? No, I think I, I think what it is is really related a lot to the uh, type of story he's writing. Um, a story like Horseman in the Sky, which depends on, uh, or even Owl Creek Bridge, which depends on a very distinct terrain feature it, it would be pretty easy to to uh, check out whether or not the events he described really happened if he specifically named the location of uh, a horseman the horseman in the sky as uh, Seneca Rocks West Virginia it would be relatively easy to check the historical record and find out if such an event ever happened there and that's the reaction Beers, I think, leaves a lot of readers with when you finish a story of his is that question, wow, I wonder if that really happened. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be pretty easy to check out and find that, find out that no, indeed, um, uh, although there were some stories about shooting from the cliffs, uh, nothing like that ever happened there, which, uh, again, you lose that quality of verisimilitude. So I think in many cases, Beers is trying to obscure the setting of the stories uh, just enough that most readers won't pursue that, won't pursue uh, checking the historical record against the events described in the story. But uh, he also writes a lot of what I would call ghost war stories or supernatural war stories. And interestingly enough, when he does that, he he sets those stories 
on very specific terrain features, and he names them by name. And he um, uh, sometimes, as you said, will even use uh, actual people, such as General Hazen, uh, by name in those stories that involve uh, supernatural events and ghosts and things like that. Um, what would be an example of, of a, a ghost or a supernatural story? Uh, I would... Oh, it's... The uh, the one about uh, the, the guy who comes upon the uh, monument to Hazen's brigade near uh, Stones River. Ah, the, the resumed identity. Yes, a resumed, a resumed I, I identity. Understand. Now, that one arguably might be more preternatural than supernatural. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's an example. There's another one called A Baffled Ambuscade, which is clearly a ghost story. Um, oh, now set on set on a road between uh, Woodbury and Readyville, Tennessee. Um, so you, you can actually identify those towns are really there. Oh yeah, and you, uh, you can actually <laughs> drive the route that he uh, that he describes in that story called the Baffled Ambuscade. And, and he sets it, as I recall, in the time of the the Stones River campaign. So you can yeah. identify the the month of, of the war when. Yeah. Such a scout would have taken place. That, that's the one, as I recall, the scout uh, uh, goes forward, and, and as the troops are following along, the scout uh, up ahead motions them, don't don't go, there's an ambush up here. Yeah, uh, uh, that's right. Uh, a scout warns a, uh, a group of federal soldiers not to proceed farther. Right. Lo and behold, the scout turns out to have been a ghost. <laughs> the, they, they find the, the body of the, the scout, and he's been dead for a while. He couldn't have yes. warned them, so that's the right. ghost had warned them. That's right. And here again, I think somehow in, in Bierce's mind, what he was shooting for was, uh, was believability here, that somehow if he set these supernatural events on, on clearly identified uh, terrain, then uh, somehow that added to their believability. Whereas in contrast, Owl Creek Bridge, you point out there is no Owl Creek in northern Alabama. No. Uh, there's one in Shiloh, but there's no bridge. That's, that's right. So uh, Owl Creek was the western boundary of the, roughly the western boundary of the Shiloh battlefield, uh, a place Bierce knew very well. And apparently he transposed the name of the creek to uh, northern Alabama. So, so if there were an Owl Creek Bridge, people would be going there and building little Bierce monuments and so on. And Right. Uh, and, right. And historians would be saying, of course, there was no hanging here. Right. Uh, and, and, and They'd probably make little pilgrimages, too. Right. So <laughs> by making that fictional, uh, it makes it more real, ironically. That's right. I mean, that's what's, that was actually the genesis of this whole project is uh, I, I had, like you, I had read uh, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge in, in high school. And many years later, when I reread it in grad school, I thought, huh, I wonder if... Uh, wonder if something like that really did happen in northern Alabama. And I started checking into it, and eventually what was a uh, started as a four- or five-page uh, course paper for a graduate course I was in uh, grew into a book. Now, the review I mentioned of this book uh, criticized it partly on grounds that it was not uh, theoretical enough um, mm-hmm. Which made me more want to read it, because if an English professor says, ah, you know, marvelous theory, then I know I'm not going to understand it. Uh, (laughs) As a history professor, I I want to actually have some facts here. Uh, So 
when when you spend the time you do connecting stories to concrete locations and times and showing how they influence things, uh, it works for me. I think I think it's a, a good approach. Uh, we're going to take another short break now. We'll be back in just a moment to discuss more of the uh, uh, quirky and fascinating short fiction of Ambrose Bierce. We're talking with Mike Owens, the author of The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce and the American War Story. And I'm Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. hero in the Civil War than Jupiter Doak, Brigadier General, I've never heard of him. And if you haven't heard of General Doak, you will soon when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Mike Owens about the Civil War fiction of Ambrose Bierce, author of uh, famous stories like the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, and some perhaps lesser-known but uh, even more evocative battle stories of the war, many of them with surprise endings. As we said at each other segment, if you haven't read the stuff, go back and read it now before we spoil the endings of some of the more interesting stories for you. Uh, Mike, one of the stories that doesn't fit the the mold, the one that, that really stands out from all the others in terms of being different altogether, and, and one of my favorites perhaps for that reason, is the, the account of Jupiter Doak, uh, Brigadier General, the great hero of the war, uh, in his own mind at least. Uh, Doak, uh, Doak's story is told in a different format from any other beer story. How, how did he do that? Well, the uh, the big difference there is it's basically an epistolary tale. Uh, it's a series of uh, of letters and correspondences between uh, this this bumbling uh political appointee named Jupiter Doak and uh, uh, his higher-ups. It also, there's some uh, newspaper articles, if I remember right, that Doak writes. Uh, and and then uh, the, the final bit of it is uh, a bit of testimony uh, from a slave, if I remember right, who happens to be witness to uh, Doak's great victory. And and the the slave uh, the irony is not lost. The slave's account is the most accurate of all. Of That's them. right. That's right. The others are all self delusional or, <laughs> or fooling the readers. You know the uneducated, illiterate 
narrator in the story is obviously the one who has the only the one who knows what's going on. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the, the or will admit it. Will will actually state it. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, I was fascinated to learn that the the plot in brief is, is that Doak wins a great battle by panicking through the mule park and causing the mules to stampede and go down a road and overrun a Confederate uh, uh, force coming the other way. That's right. And, and what makes it, I think, especially funny is he had been corralling all the mules in case they were attacked so yep. that they could beat a hasty re- retreat. Yes, this was his, his, way, his means of escape. I was fascinated to learn from your book that this actually happened. Yeah. Well, not exactly the way it happens in Jupiter Dope, but I think there is certainly a, a historical uh, analog for it. There was a, an incident, uh, I think it was Wahatchee, uh, uh, Tennessee, where, where Union Mule Farm, uh, Mule Park, uh, just took off and, and ran through the Confederate lines. That, that's right. The con- Confederates were making a, this is about the time of uh, Chickamauga, if I remember correctly, um, the uh, the Confederates were making a night attack, which uh, you know was still very difficult business, uh, particularly difficult in the Civil War. Um, Confederates tried a night attack, and they happened to run into, the, as you said, a big mule yard, and uh, uh, this attack panicked the mules, and the Teamsters uh, who were handling them couldn't control them, and so the mules stampeded right into the Confederate attacking Confederate force. And uh, uh, the uh, Confederates thought they were under some kind of a uh, major cavalry attack, and uh, and they retreated. And pretty soon the story, as you can imagine, got around both armies, and it became known as the Charge of the Mule Brigade. And Bierce uh, was only a few miles away. Bierce and Hazen were only a few miles away from where this happened, and Hazen opined uh, afterwards that he always thought that that Confederate attack was meant for him and was was just a little, uh, 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 missed its uh, target a little bit. The uh, the story works because of Bierce's wordplay throughout. The, uh, uh, the names all sound like Civil War generals, though they aren't quite. Jupiter Doke being one of them. Uh, uh, his Confederate rivals, Gibby and Buckster and Dolliver Billows, mm-hmm. um, which puts in mind uh, uh, Pillow and Buckner, Gideon right. and, uh, Pillow and, and, and uh, Simon Buckner, but right. but it's not quite them. And the place names are similarly uh, on the edge of ludicrous. Uh, but right. one of the places I recall is Horse Cave, Kentucky. Uh, is there such a place? Uh, I I don't know for sure. I don't believe there is. Now, Bierce was uh, was born, actually, at a place called Horse Cave Creek. So it's so not in Kentucky. Real... It's in Ohio. So there is a real origin for, the, for even for that name. Yeah. Uh, and his family moved when he was a small boy to uh, 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 a family homestead near Warsaw, Indiana. But he was actually born at uh, Horse Cave Creek, Ohio. Okay. And, and in this story of Jupiter Doak, um, you suggest uh, some writers, and, and I gather you, you see some identity between Doak and, and U.S. Grant, whom uh, Beers had no particular regard for. Beers was always a fierce partisan of General Buell, who had helped save Grant at Shiloh, according to Buell's 
allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you're a Buell man or a Grant man, and, and Bierce is clearly a Buell man. But as I read the story, uh, Doak is much more a uh, lampoon of a political general, not not uh, which Grant certainly was not. Uh, among other things, Doak continually uh, mis misidentifies the Confederates for Democrats. He keeps slipping up and, and act, writing as though he's in a political campaign mm-hmm. rather than a military campaign, because that's all I can think about is his own political career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't seem to fit with Grant very well. No, and uh, uh, I think I think uh, I, I don't want to make too much of the connection with, with Grant. I think it's just some minor needling, really, with probably... With the uh, first name, you know, Jupiter and Ulysses, both characters out of uh, out of mythology, um, the the state he's originally from and his Republican Party affiliation, Mira Grants, and and I'm not the first one who has pointed that out. And and yeah, you're exactly right. There was uh, Bierce was no admirer of Grants, um, no. mainly because of uh, events from Shiloh, uh, and and. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, what he's really taking a dig at in Jupiter Doke is the incompetence of some of the uh, political appointees, much more so than uh, taking digs at Grant. He does he does come out with some very explicit criticism of Grant in other places. Yes, yeah, he's not not shy about his opinion there. Certainly, no, he's not. Well, let me just ask of of, uh, of Bierce's stories, which one one or ones. Are, are your favorites? If, if after long exposure you can step back and, and pick one or two. Well, I would have to say I uh, I really do like Owl Creek Bridge. I always have. I I like uh, Horseman in the Sky. I like one called um, uh, The Affair at Coulter's Notch, which is about an artilleryman who ends up uh, uh, shelling his own house. Uh, I think I think that's a good one. The uh, th- that theme comes back uh, as we saw in Horseman in the Sky, where the sentry has to shoot at his own father uh-huh. in Coulter's Notch. The artilleryman has to shell his own house. That's right. Um, this kind of thing happens uh, again and again in these stories. The, yeah, you uh, can actually keep a little scorecard, uh, and if you read Bierce's fiction of uh, a soldier killing member of immediate family, <laughs> check off father, you know, check. brother, right, wife. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and and himself frequently. Yes, there are a number of suicide stories. Yes, um, or arguably suicide stories. Uh, George Thurston is, is of course the story where the soldier, after trying to kill himself uh, by exposure to enemy fire, and this one I thought goes perhaps the farthest into sort of weirdness, uh, swings on a giant swing that the the soldiers have set up in a big pine tree, uh-huh. and and. As we used to do on the schoolyard, I bet you can't go all the way around, uh, do a 360 on the playground swing, which I've never seen done. Uh, I don't know if it's possible. I think on Mythbusters they showed you could do it, actually, um, if you had enough force. But but the, the, the protagonist in that story uh, goes up too high and falls off and, and dies. Uh that story uh, was there a giant swing somewhere in, in northern Georgia? <laughs> Not that I know of. I, did he ever see anything like that? Is that just pure pure invention? I suspect. I, I honestly don't know. I suspect it's pure invention. I, that 
I never even thought of that, frankly. <laughs> I mean, that, that one seems to me the oddest. Uh, if that were in someone else's memoirs or diary or letter, we'd, we'd know about it by now, probably. Yeah. And I think that's one of Bierce's several stories into the uh, into the nature of courage. That's that's one of his favorite themes, particularly uh, later on in the war. And there there you see uh, a guy who is, uh, as as the narrator in that story puts it, vain of his courage and wants to make quite a public display of his courage, uh, which seems uh, almost suicidal at times. And that, again, reflects Bierce's own experience. You, you point out he saved other soldiers' lives at great personal risk on more than one occasion. Yeah, uh, that, that happened at least a couple of times that uh, I know of when he was mentioned in dispatches and such for it, where, where yeah, he did drag badly wounded soldiers uh, uh, to safety or carry them to safety under, uh, under intense fire. So, so he had some idea, some personal knowledge of the the nature of battlefield courage. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he does write in uh, uh, an essay somewhere I can't recall the name of it that that indeed for him courage was uh, was overcoming fear and doing what uh, what needed to be done despite the fear of it. Well, there are so many interesting themes in these stories: the, the nature of courage, the the conflict of duties to country or family, um, the the nature of officership and, and the responsibility of obeying orders. Uh, uh, one of my favorite stories is, is uh, the story of one kind of officer, where the the, uh, the battery commander is told, you will defend this position and fire at any troops to your front, mm-hmm. and that's all you need to know, and he's, he's rudely treated by the general. So he opens fire on the next troops in his front, who, of course, are on his own side, mm-hmm. uh, for which he, he ultimately is going to be court-martialed. But, but his, his uh, in, interpretation of orders, uh, it seems to me, shows Bierce exploring what, what does an officer need to know? What are you supposed to do uh, uh, when you're given an unreasonable order? Right. And... Uh... The uh, the officer who gets that order turns right around and treats one of his subordinates in exactly the same way that the general has just treated him. And uh, uh, I think what Bierce is trying to show there is exactly the kind of officer one should not be. You know, he titles the story "One Kind of Officer," and then I, I think he's saying this is not a good kind of officer. Uh, the way this captain behaves. It contrasts that with the, the passage in his uh, account of, of Shiloh, of the, the officers of his regiment, the, uh, the colonel screaming at the lieutenant colonel, get down, sir, uh, while in turn seeking the most exposed position he can, uh, and the lieutenant colonel in turn yelling at the major, take cover, and he, each officer trailing his subordinates to get out of danger while himself <laughs> making the biggest display of courage that he possibly can. Yeah. But Beer says that is the kind of officer to be. Uh, yeah, seems to me. Uh, absolutely. Bierce, uh, and I think he learned much of this from General Hazen. Or not, I think I know he learned much of it from General Hazen. Is the uh, uh, the, the the incredible sense of professional duty and selfless service that comes with being an officer, and uh, uh, I, I think that gets reflected a, a lot in the uh, stories he writes, in which the hero is an admirable man who uh, who does his duty and and frequently pays uh, uh, pays for it with his life yeah 
Well, unfortunately, Mike, we are out of time, as happens too soon, every week on Civil War Talk Radio. But thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome, Jerry. Thanks very much for inviting me. And listeners, thank you for joining us today in this season. Be sure and uh, take a look at this book, The Devil's Topographer, Ambrose Bierce and the American War Story by David M. Owens. Uh, if After you've read Bierce, you'll find this a uh, very enlightening explanation of what went on. And uh, everyone have a good summer. Enjoy the reruns. We'll be back in the end of August with another season of Civil War Talk Radio.